Oh, okay. Oh, nice. Okay. So, let's let's begin. Hello, Mr. Kinsella. Uh, my name is Mario Delano. is my friend. And uh, we have here four, or André, our friend. We are from the group uh, Visconde Mauá, uh, also a libertarian group from Brazil. And uh, uh, we are very grateful to your presence. Uh, we thank you so much to attend our calling. So we are I'm very fans. Happy to be here. Yeah, me too. We are very fans of you and your work. So the opportunity for our conversation is unique. So I would like you to feel free to talk about the issues that we will be addressing, okay? Sure. So uh, we will talk about uh, what it means to be a libertarian uh, anarchist. I know that you have an article about this uh, issue. So to introduce, what does it really mean to be an anarchist or libertarian or austro-libertarian? What do you think about that? Have you guys ever heard of the uh, the libertarian macho flash? No. Did you guys ever heard what it means? There was a guy named Michael Michael Cloud who I never met, who was before my time, but like in the 1970s in American libertarian movements, and he had this expression called the libertarian macho flash. You know what macho means, right? Like you know, macho man. Yeah. yeah. People that always want to like go too far or whatever. Um, and he was talking about how um, like if you're at like just a regular uh, family dinner with normal friends or coworkers and the libertarian guy goes you know, he has to like drop the nuclear bomb and just say, instead of just saying something normal like, "Well, maybe tax rates are too high," he just says, "We should abolish the police and everything," and he just goes to the, you know, to the rails, as we call it in engineering, to the rails. Like he just goes to the maximum. It's the macho flash. So, I, I I'm like that, especially when I talk to other libertarians, especially when we talk about theory. When you ask me a question about, okay, anarcho-capitalism. Anarchy, libertarianism, because that's a serious question, and people that are listening presumably are not going to be uh, um, turned off by the macho flash, right? Which it's not really a macho flash because that's what the question's about. Anyway, you just reminded me of that. Um, it, it's kind of a funny. I, I love these things from the 60s and the 70s and the beginnings of libertarianism, like all these things that a lot of the young people now have never heard of or that we hear about, and they're, they're, they're just kind of funny. But um, because you know, I guess the answer, the, the answer to that question could be gradual and gentle, or it could be abrupt and a macho flash. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I could give you the rigorous thing. Okay, here's what libertarianism is, and but I, the way I formulated the answers to these questions, and I've written two articles on these very topics, which is what I think you're getting at. Um, but my my formulation of the answers took a while to develop. It took years to develop, right? Talking with people, arguing with people, seeing what ex explanations to me or to them make sense, 
Um, so I think there are two different questions, to be honest. Um, I, so I read one article called What It Means to Be an Anarcho-Capitalist, and the other was uh, uh, What Libertarianism Is, like what is our essential thing? And to a degree, the second question gets into this – I don't know if you're familiar with this whole debate in some libertarian circles about, about thickism, thickism, which means that is libertarianism… About more than just uh, political, interpersonal political ethics, right? Is it something more? And if it's more, what more is it, right? Is it more about morals? Is it interpersonal moral? Is it like a personal moral or an ethic like you shouldn't commit aggression? Uh, does it involve? And if that if that's the case, does it involve more than that? Does it involve uh, uh, strictures? Against uh, dishonesty, all kinds of things, right? Um, um, and also, does it involve activism, right? Which is what a lot of libertarians, especially young libertarians, are into. They're into activism. They're trying to push liberty to some degree because they value liberty. So, at a certain point, like the in, in the U.S., the Libertarian Party, right? These kind of guys, or, or the Ron Paul movement, this this kind of thing. Um, they start to equate activism with the substance of the of the movement, and whether there's a connection is interesting, but I do think that we need to distinguish them, right? Um, so I guess my answer – let's start with the first, what it means to be an anarchist. Okay, to be an anarchist, let, let's just say we already accept the libertarian principles, right? Now, so to do that, we have to say what the libertarian principles are. The libertarian principle is worded differently by different thinkers, especially over time. And as the movement matures and as it gets more radical and as more people come into it. But in my personal perspective, um, I almost believe that the word liberty is the wrong word to use, just like the word freedom. Um, if, if you remember, there was a famous American libertarian named Harry Brown, and he wrote this book called How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World, and he, he ran for president. In fact, his vice presidential candidate in 1996, I believe, was Joe Jorgensen, who is now the uh, the presidential candidate for the American Libertarian Party in our election coming up in November. Um, he had a chapter which blew my mind, which was that you should never get married because that reduces your freedom. Okay, Now, you can see that's a little bit of a hippie 1970s California libertarian mentality, and that's fine. I don't care what you believe, but… That's really not libertarianism, that you should never get married, right? But he had this whole thing about how you shouldn't get married because it reduces your freedom. So he was focusing on freedom. So it makes me think, okay, what's the essential what's the essential principle that we we really, really, really believe in as libertarians, right? Is it liberty? Is it freedom? Is it prosperity? Is it longevity? Whatever, and the more I think about it, I think it's really um, 
it's it's something about society. Like we want to live in society with other human beings, right? So we want to get along with people and get the benefits of living with other people, which is trade, uh, you know, relationships, family, community, the division of labor, etc. But the danger then is then there's other human beings and they could they could harm you. They could take your stuff. They can they can have a conflict with you over scarce resources, right? Which is why property rights emerge. And so the norms of society and civilization are basically the core libertarian norm, which is coming up with a set of rules that 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 allow people to get the benefits of living in in proximity to and with other human beings, but in cooperation, right, and in harmony, and that requires a set of rules, which we call property rights. So, this sounds boring, like a law professor talk, but it's really all about property rights. It's like we we have to have property rights, rules, norms, laws, and they have to be roughly centered around the natural way that human beings. Interact with each other and use resources in the world, which is why Mises and Austrian economics and human action and praxeology is so important because this understanding of economics um, and how humans use resources informs uh, this this view of the world. Okay, so to be a libertarian, I believe, means that you understand all this and you favor this and you basically are in favor of. Uh, so you're not a sociopath or a psychopath, right? Like you don't want the human race to die off. You don't want people to be murdered and babies to be killed. You want to have a good life, and you want your neighbors to have a good life, and you want to live among them and trade with them and to have intercourse with them in various ways, right? And if you're have just a reasonable degree of economic literacy. Like if you just read Henry Hazlitt, even or even Milton Friedman, right? Uh, Capitalism and Freedom, or Henry Hazlitt, uh, Economics in One Lesson, or or Bastiat, The Law, something like that. If you just have a reasonable degree of economic literacy and a reasonable degree of liberalism and thoughtfulness, right? Um, and you have the right values, which most human beings do, because the ones that don't tend to be killed and they don't they don't live along. So, so dar, 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 uh, natural selection helps us along, I believe. Uh, it eliminates most psychopaths and most sociopaths. There's still some, but most people want the basic things we want. They want overall prosperity for their neighbors and for themselves. So, if you understand a little bit about economics. And interpersonal relationships and the way the, the world really is, you will tend to favor um, a, a world with property rights rules that favor live and let live, the libertarian axiom, like non-aggression principle. Everyone owns their own body. People can own resources that they, they homestead, etc. So to me, libertarianism is just um, – the recognition of the principles that you need to have in place for society to exist right, in its fullest form, and those rules are basically self-ownership, which is you own your body presumptively. 
I say presumptively because it's not a it's not a guarantee or a given because you can lose the right. You can forfeit the right. So for example, if you're attacking another person in that moment you've lost the right to your body because your victim has the right to use force and self-defense against your body, right? But as a general matter, everyone owns their own body and then they own things that they homestead in the world that were previously unowned or that they got by contract from someone else. So you could – basically the libertarian uh, – libertarians believe in the Lockean, natural, common sense, common law view of, of rights. Now, anarchy or anarcho-capitalism um, – I would say that's just a natural consequence of this view because – if you oppose aggression, right, by which we mean it's just a word that so aggression by its its normal meaning means if you literally use your body to hit someone else. You physically invade someone else's body with your body. That's what aggression is. Or maybe with an object or a means like a gun or a spear or a knife. Um, that is just another way of saying that every person owns their body, okay? and that's, this is because rights and obligations are correlative. Um, and I think that the non-aggression principle or the idea of opposing aggression is just a shorthand way of, of explaining what I just said earlier. Like basically it's, it's a compressed shorthand or uh, – a summary version of the set of natural rules for property rights that allow us to live together in cooperation and harmony and to generate prosperity and live together as human society and civilization. Right. So libertarianism is the set of rules that are basically what the, the Roman the Roman law and the civil law in Latin America in Brazil. And the common law in England and the West, um, it's basically a more pure version of that. Um, uh, a common sense version uh, – those are common sense rules, but there's a, there's a pure version of that which we could refine. We could fix mistakes here and there. Um, and anarchy is just the recognition that what the state is. What is the state? So – Notice that I try to avoid the word government because the word government can be ambiguous, especially in different languages and different cultures because um, in parliamentary countries, for example, the word government is used to refer to the – what we in the US call the administration, like the Trump administration. Like if the Trump administration changes when there's a new election, it doesn't mean the government or the state disappears. So the state is there. So this concept of the state or the deep state is real, um, and I think what libertarians oppose is the state or the deep state. We oppose not the current administration or the current government. We oppose the current state uh, or the, the existing state, and the reason is because the state by its, by its nature does one of two things, and all and in fact always does both. It either taxes – so it has the right to tax. Or it has the right to impose a monopoly on jurisdiction over law and, and, and defense, and either one implies the other. 
because if you can tax, you can have um, – it's, it's, it's similar to the reason that uh, citizens in countries where there are government schools or, or state schools send their children to schools because it's already paid for. Now, it's not free. They think of it as free, but it's not free. It's paid for, but it puts private schools or tuition-paid private schools at a disadvantage because you've got to pay sort of twice or however you want to think about it. right? And the same thing happens if the government has the power to tax. It can just outcompete its, its, its other competitors, um, or if it has the right to outlaw them. Which mo which most minarchists and like Randians believe in, and most normal people, <laughs> um, it can also uh, charge a monopoly price because they don't have competition because they can outlaw the competition. So either one implies the other. The power to tax basically gives you a monopoly, or the ha having of a monopoly basically gives you the power to tax or to charge monopoly fees, and either one leads to the state, right? So. That's the essential problem with the state, and so the the state, the state essentially by its nature, but by doing one of these two things, and of course it always does both, um, essentially commits aggression. So to outlaw competition or to tax, both require the forcible taking of other people's property, right? So this is the essential argument against the state. It's got nothing to do with um, um, science fiction novels imagining you know, a, a free society. It's got nothing to do with predictions about how likely anarchy is. Um, it, it could be that anarchy will take a long time to achieve or maybe never will be achieved. I don't know, but the essential argument for anarchy is that the state… Commits aggression, and aggression is unjustifiable, according to the original libertarian principles. So that's a long-winded answer to your two very compressed questions, but uh, I'll pause here. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, very nice, Mr. Casella. So my friend Four has have one thing to say. All right. Hello, Mr. Gonzalez. I'm a great fan. <laughs> um, I would ask you, how do you imagine the transformation of a state society, a public law society, let's say, to a private law society, borrowing a term from Hans Hoppe, like for a statist to uh, also libertarian or anarcho-capitalist in this case? Tell me more. Tell me more about your question. You, how do I imagine the transition, or what it would look like, or a prediction, or what? What do you mean? What's what's, what's the question really? Like, what are the essential steps to have this transition in the way you see it? For example, uh, as you said before, uh, the state is a monopoly on taxation. Like, they, they decide who they're going to tax, how they're going to tax, and you cannot. Uh, recur uh, to any jurisdiction because they are the ultimate jurisdiction. At, this, at the same time, you also talk about government, on which the state is a monopoly on government too. Like says, uh, he's the ultimate sense of monopoly of, of government. So, what do you think? Like noticing that that is the aim to to transform, like to break this monopoly on uh, 
extinguish taxation, mm. break the monopoly in govern, uh, governance, and uh, the, jurist, uh, ju uh, the, the judicial monopoly. What do you think is like the important steps to achieve this goal? To go for a state society, like having a state to anarcho-capitalist, uh, a private law society. Right. Yeah. Right. And okay, so look, I'm 55 years old. I've been around the movement for a long time. I learned from lots of people who wrote in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, um, before the movement was really as radical it is as, as it is now, but in a way they were more educated because there was less to learn right they, everyone knew of all the stuff um, nowadays you have a bigger movement and it's more international and a lot of it came from Ron Paul and whatever but they passed through um, and a lot of people are interested in this because of this activist assumption like what can we do to achieve liberty, right? So that's the idea. Um, and I'm not opposed to that, of course. I, I don't think I would have been interested in it for the last 30 years if I hadn't had that fervor, that that fever. Do you know what I mean? Too. Um, and the, here's the problem for me is that I learned early from a lot of thinkers and a lot of my colleagues who were from the older generations, and now the only people I talk about these things with is people like you, the younger guys. Like the older guys, we all know what we believe, and we just meet with each other, and we have fun and whatever. So I don't really – I feel sometimes like I don't have a safety net. Do you know what I mean? But like you know, a guy in a, in, a, in a circus wire who's doing an acrobatic maneuver, and he, he might fall. I feel like I don't have a safety net because I don't really talk to the, the great guys I used to learn from. So what I say is just my current opinion. Um, and what I've come to think is that I don't want to be negative about like, – let me put it this way. I go back and forth. I've had phases in my life and in my libertarian devotions where I go back and forth. I've become very negative about activism and this whole idea of activism for, for various reasons, which I'll get to in a second. But on the other hand, about a year or two ago, I joined the Libertarian Party in America for the first time. I've never been a member of the Libertarian Party, but Tom Woods joined and a bunch of guys joined, and I, I, I you know what? You could criticize the Libertarian Party. Let's let's say the American Libertarian Party. You can criticize that from a radical perspective, like an Austrian uh, uh, anarchist perspective, like mine, because they're just not that. They're just not that. They're hardly libertarian from our point of view, right? I mean, but on the other hand, I thought to myself, these are my brothers, right? Yeah, there may be. They're trying to fight it with the political system. That's probably not going to work. But they're fighting for the right thing, and they're basically pushing in my direction, and they're my brothers. So why would I not join the LP? So I joined the LP. So I did that. Okay, so that's my current phase, although I'm still pessimistic because I'm a cynic and a realist. But what I've come to believe, to be honest, 
I'm a huge Austrian. I, I think Austrian economics is my my main, I want to say, philosophy of life, but uh, kind of the guiding uh, mentality that shapes everything else. However, however, there is an important insight that I've seen in the in the public choice economics, right? Which is basically this simple idea, the simple idea that Okay, what's the reason we have bad laws, bad statutes in your gov in your country and mine? The reason is because special interests push for them, and they get a gain out of that, and everyone else pays the cost, right? It's basically redistribution, right? But the people that pay the cost are paying a penny or a dime or a dollar a year each. It's very little. But it, it concentrates to these special interests that get the gains, and so of course the special interests have the incentive to push for these measures and to keep them alive. right? So I'm afraid that this public choice type reasoning is the reason why the state emerges and why it, it probably cannot be defeated by political activism. Like I don't think the reason we have a state is because… You and I, you know, Mario, Gabriel, we we haven't persuaded enough people yet. We never can, and if we do, they're going to die, and it, it, it's a never-ending battle. I don't think you're going to get, you know, thirty percent, forty percent, a hundred percent, fifty percent of the population to read Henry Hazlitt, right, or Bastiat, or Mises. It's just not going to happen. They have other things in their lives. So the state, I think, emerges naturally in human society. I don't want to sound Marx, you know. So like Marx believed that capitalism was like an inevitable stage before true communism, right? I think it's all crazy, but you see what he was thinking. I I almost believe this. So I think the state at a certain stage of human society is inevitable. But I don't believe it's a uh, – what, what, what do the Randians call it? They, they, they don't want to call it a necessary evil. They say it's a necessary good. I don't think it's a necessary good or evil. I don't think it's necessary, but I, I think it's an inevitable evil. Okay. So the question is if this is all true and we focus on the normative issues, like the normative issues, like what is right and wrong, what laws should we have, like what we – you and I could talk about this. We could say, should there be a minimum wage law? We all know there shouldn't be a minimum wage law. We know why. We know the problem it causes. right? However, there is a minimum wage law. Why is that? Because lots of people benefit from it. You know, Amazon and Walmart benefit from that because they pay their employees above minimum wage, so it doesn't hurt them, but it hurts their competitors, etc. You know, we all know this. So that takes a little bit of cold calculating economic analysis and the public choice type analysis to recognize but no one's going to recognize this only a few nerds are going to recognize this so this so recognizing this and pointing it out it's not going to solve the problem so i i think activism is a good thing to engage in like look if i'm fighting off uh, a bunch of marauders attacking my family farm 
I will I'll go to the last breath and die to defend them, even even if it's futile. And that's what people do, and that's fine. But, but that's not going to win liberty. So the real question is, what is liberty, right? And how can we achieve it? Or can we do anything to achieve it? Or how will it be achieved? So to my mind, liberty is a state of affairs where institutional aggression is reduced, right? Or, or basically minimized or, or, or abolished. Um, but you can't have that if there's a state. But there's going to be a state as long as the special interest groups have their sway. Now, can forming a libertarian party, can activism, can handing out pamphlets, can giving talks on YouTube help? I think these things help keep the remnant alive. They, keep, they help keep the flame alive, and they help us to understand, and they help us to advance the cause. We do talk with each other. The, the rare 0.01% of people that are interested in these things, we talk with each other. We learn. We advance. We write. This little core of ideas keeps perpetuating, but it's not that potent. right? It's not going to stop these forces. So I hate to sound like a sci-fi guy, but my only hope is that humanity… Advances to a, another phase of human evolution, right? Like another, like the industrial revolution keeps happening. This exponential curve of human wealth keeps happening, even though the government and the special interests are trying to impede it. Um, and that we get so wealthy and so technologically advanced that at a certain point the government becomes um, irrelevant. But what that means is that. If that happens, it's not because of libertarian activists. Like we didn't cause it. We can't even take the credit for it. We just kept the flame alive so that when, when we have liberty, people can – the few people that want to understand this can read a couple of books and understand why we have liberty. But liberty has to be natural to, to, to emerge, and to be natural, it has to come about without activists, I believe. So this sounds pessimistic because it's like it's like throwing cold water on the activist flames, but I don't want to do that because I do think – I mean I'm an activist. I've been doing this for 30 years. I want to fight for liberty. I want to go down with the ship if I have to, right? Um, but I think that there is hope, but it's not around the corner. I think it's 100 years, 1,000 years, 30 years. From now, when technology becomes so advanced that everyone has their own self-defense armies, their own robots. I mean if you have your – just imagine a society where you have a robot and a nuclear power station in your backyard, and he makes your food. He can take care of you. He can defend you. At that point, the state becomes… The state would probably still be there, but it'd be like a museum thing. You know, it'd be like when you go to London and you go to the uh, the uh, the Tower of London, and there's the the, the guards and the and the red shirts, and they're kind of cute, and everyone goes there and takes pictures with them. They're they're museum relics. They're not real anymore, right? Or Buckingham Palace, you know, the same thing. 
And I, I, I kind of think – so it's like the Marxian idea of the state withering away after capitalism um, has a certain phase. I think the state has to wither away because the market just basically eventually outcompetes it, and at that point, humanity would have hopefully given up a lot of its superstitions about race and religion and uh, all this stuff, right? And we would be more cosmopolitan. We'd be more modern, uh, more uh, more. We would just we would expect liberty, and we would be used to liberty. So, I guess my hope is wealth and technology is the only thing that will save us. Um, well, I just want to make a comment over it. Uh, this, this position, I understand where you're coming from, but. I imagine in this kind of transition being more an institutional transition than a, a just like a wealth accumulation stuff. This has a big role to play, but there is no way to just wait for the wealth and have this fatalist idea of of the transition from a statist society to a, a private law society without having the reformation or the substitution of some key aspects of uh, uh, institutions and uh, culture uh, values, you know? So there is my, in my vision, there is a point, like it's not, it's not just something like activism as you, you treated, you know, I'm not trying to do a sermon or anything like that, but it's more like a, a, a thing focused on making so simple that is like uh, common sense, you know. It's like imagine, as you said about the robots and stuff. Uh, there is not a real problem about technology. The market is always uh, more advanced than the state on technology. The state need to co-opt the market to have a more advanced technology, for example, for war or something like that. You know. So the main idea, I think, is not technological enlightenment of humanity. But uh, institution, uh, institutional and uh, and on, on culture because you need to have these uh, institutions to start to to take these areas where the state uh, operates and you need to have uh, the culture to keep it to maintain it and and you have like the I think it was Edmund Burke that said uh, about uh, society being a uh, like a chain between who died, who is living, and who's gonna live, who's gonna born and, and, and live. So there, there is this, uh, let's say, this mindset, this what, cycle. What, 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 what was, what was, sorry, what was the Eben, what was it? I'm curious, what was that quote about uh, the chain, the Burke quote about chain between living and the dying? Well, is, uh, uh, it was Burke, but it's something like that. A society is like a contract between uh, generations, that, uh, generations that died because it created yeah. the institution. So we today need to maintain it and adapt for our current problems because it created for the yeah. back, uh, problems at the time. So we can give yeah. to uh, people the future, like our yeah. sons, daughters, to, to solve their problems. So my idea of libertarianism and the, let's say, the, uh, the transformation of a, so, a state society to a libertarian society 
is in part uh, uh, like in the uh, short term institutional. For example, I need to, in my case, for example, me and Mario, we have a arbitration chamber, a, a private tribunal, let's say. But that is not enough. We need to have the cultural aspects to capitalize over it. So that needs to be something uh, that uh, stands uh, the test of time, you know, and the future generations need to add upon that and adapt to what needs to be adapted. So I, 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 I totally agree. I totally agree with this, by the way. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that because, uh, like, you, you say something over the, uh, the side of activism and technology, but I think it's like, uh, yeah, people who take these points as granted, they are not going for uh, for the real question, and that is uh, that would be the next question I would say, like, for for example, what catalyzes it, and what do you think about politics, for example, do you think politics has something to play on it, or you think it's uh, just a waste? Of time, so I so uh, this gets uh, okay. I mentioned Albert J. Nock earlier, uh, but I didn't mention him. But this idea of what's called the remnant. If you look up Albert J. Nock, he was one of the early old right uh, libertarian writers. I think he was kind of a cynic, skeptic, pessimist as well, and he thought that our main goal was to keep the remnant. Alive, like which is like a little piece of the flame. Keep the flame going, right, for future civilizations. Um, I'm not that cynical, um, but I I I have come to the view that if we achieve liberty, it will not be because we guys were pushing for it. It has to be natural. It has to be self-sustaining, right? Um, and this is one reason. Not to get back on my hobby horse, which is intellectual property, but one reason I focus on patent law and copyright law, but especially patent law so much, um, is because I think that this is this is the way. This is the way. So I think that there's like a huge um, lack of appreciation in the Austrian and libertarian movement. Not to mention normal normal thinkers, but but for the role of knowledge and information. So the way I look at it is this, and the reason I'm so passionate about patent law um, is not just because I know more about it than almost everyone else, and that's the one thing I can talk about. It's it's because to figure this little issue out has made me rethink almost everything and understand everything in a different light. Um, the, the key to human society, and I'm, I mean, I'm not a misanthrope. I'm not a psychopath. I'm not a sociopath. So I'm in favor of human civilization and society and the advancement and progress of the human race, okay? Whatever that means, but in general. Um, but what that means is basically repeated successful human action, right? Now, to me, what that means is some of these like Austrian or basic libertarian concepts, they sound so trivial and they sound so obvious when you state them, but it takes a while to understand things. Even the assembly line and some of Adam Smith's ideas, you know, marginal utility. Some some ideas are so are so trivial when you 
state them once we figure them out, but I think they're revolutionary. And one that I think hasn't been fully appreciated is – okay, take praxeology, Mises' idea of the, the structure of human action. Okay, most people don't even understand economics, and most economists don't understand Austrian, but among – and among the Austrians, half of them aren't even… Misesians, but for the subset of the subset of the subset of the people that appreciate praxeology, even they focus on one part of it, which is the means. Like it, the idea is that human action is the intentional uh, attempt to intervene in the state of affairs of the universe uh, by using scarce resources or means to causally change the state of affairs to achieve a future state of affairs that you wouldn't otherwise have. Now, it's not always put like that, but that's what it's about. It's about using means, employing means, doing things, or acting. You could call it acting, right? But the thing that's that's usually uh, downplayed in that analysis is the, is the role of knowledge because to do anything, you have to have knowledge or ideas, ideas about… What's possible now, ideas about what causal laws operate, ideas about what means would ser serve to do what you want to do, ideas about what the future might be like so that you want to achieve A versus B versus C. So you have to have knowledge that guides or informs your actions. right? So there's two crucial ingredients of human action. One is the availability and employability of scarce resources or means, okay? and the other is the availability of knowledge that helps to guide your actions. Right Now, we live in a world, as far as we know, of diminishing resources or of finite resources or something. So the scarce resources, the means, are not really going to increase that much. Uh, I mean we're using them up all the time. The second law of thermodynamics helps to explain that. right? However, every generation, every year, every month, we learn more things. We learn more knowledge, and that knowledge is passed down from society. Hayek writes about this to a little bit, to, to a small degree. Um, so to my mind, this… This trust, this sort of encased set of knowledge that we build on is what is essential to the human race prospering and surviving, which is why I hate patent law because the whole idea of patent law is to slow down progress, to slow down the use of knowledge, to slow down the spread of knowledge, right? or copyright too to a certain degree. Uh, so if you understand that human action… Or successful human action, human prosperity of our human race, of ourselves, our family, uh, of our future generations, it depends primarily upon information, not upon scarce resources because they're not expanding. So any, any law or policy measure you would take that would in, hamper or impede… The spread or use of knowledge is basically killing millions of future human beings. That's really what I believe.
This is why I'm so passionate about IP. So I hate war. I hate taxes. I hate the Federal Reserve. I hate inflation, all these things, public education. But honestly, I think in a way the worst one is the patent system because it slows down the spread of human knowledge, and that's the only thing that keeps us going on this curve. Right? They can help us uh, escape the parasitical state, which is trying to stop us. So we have this ever since the year 1800 or so, the Industrial Revolution, right? And now we have the Internet Revolution. We have these this exponential curve happening, but it's like you have this strong horse running along, but there's all these parasites hanging off of it, and as the horse gets bigger, the parasites get bigger. Which is the state. The horse is the free market, right? And I just don't know which one's going to win. I'm worried that the, the parasites might kill it, which is why we don't see life in outer space, right? Where are they? Right? The Fermi paradox. Where are they? So I, I'm a little bit worried that we will snuff ourselves out with the state because of the way the state happens, but my my optimistic hope is that in in a certain number of years we will somehow we will somehow escape from this trap and we will just leave the state behind as a withering husk of uh, of irrelevancy. This is Kinsella waxing philosophical. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm done. I'm done, I'm, I'm done uh, pontificating. Your concern is the the apes with nukes, right? Like people just throwing nukes at each other, so civilization ends. Uh, one thing that is said that is really important on my vision is what is said about uh, you cannot just act without uh, information or without knowing stuff. Like if you don't know, you don't know how to act. You don't know what to do, and then you just uh, have instincts and stuff. That remembers me Wittgenstein, that he said what cannot be proposed or what cannot be shown in, in a syllogical or should not be said or cannot be said. So it's, uh, it's, it's like the more deep than that. What cannot be taught cannot be done, let's say. That is why you have uh, like uh, Aurelian uh, uh, tales, for example, uh, books and stuff saying about the changing the language, and that happen, happens today. Now we have all the, the new movements of the left, like social justice lawyers doing what is, which words you can or cannot use, what you can and cannot do, what is right, what is uh, cultural appropriation, what is not. And like that is not a novelty over there in the United States or North America or let's say first world problems, but is uh, something that happens here uh, too. It's a control of uh, language, and controlling the language is a way to control thoughts. I don't know if you. Uh, I think that's I think that's a good point. I I agree with that, uh, and of course I oppose all these modern uh, insane uh, policies and movements that. Yeah, if you restrict speech and you restrict thought and what people can say, then you're in, in a essence censoring thought, and that's my essential problem with 
copyright and the patent system is that um, you're preventing what people can learn and say, right? Because the only way you can learn is by by talking to other people, by by having an argument or a discourse. There has to be a certain boundary, right, or a certain field on that you can that you can use to discuss op openly things with each other. Oh, uh, this is the whole idea. So, by, by the way, this is the whole idea of the of the West, the the open society. I mean, we used to be in favor of the open society, right? The open society is okay. Everyone express your ideas. Uh, the left has, of course, turned totally against this because they're losing. The left has lost. Well, the left has won in a way. They've lost the cultural war, but the, the left has won the economic war because society keeps becoming more and more statist and leftist and centralist, but they don't like the results. So their only response can be to fight the – Ability of people to object. They can't use their own ideas because their ideas make no sense. They're racist the ideas. Everyone knows they're the racist, right? I mean, they want to have affirmative action and all these policies where you favor people because of their race and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like Orwellian doublespeak at a certain point. Uh, they, they, they distort language, they misinterpret language. And so they eventually take control of these yeah so these these tech these tech companies uh, facebook youtube all the isps yeah they're deplatforming people because they're not politically correct yeah it's becoming a battle a problem now i personally yeah, don't think we should we should use the government to stop them from doing that because they're not the government they're just they're the politically correct tech actors, right? Who they do what they do. They're trying to make money, in a sense, and appease their constituents. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the, the fight, the fight over uh, uh, the, the left is trying. It's not just informational in a way, but it's uh, it's a cultural fight. They they keep fighting. They they didn't lose. They're still fighting. For example, they are not trying to just censor. The information by by let's say passing laws or having the state to do it, but they are trying to demoralize the information, like uh, do a moral quarantine if you if you think about that. For example, oh you cannot talk about uh, let's say black people, white people, or women and stuff because then you can be deemed as racist, sexist, and anything right. like that. So. The idea is to uh, is is not like, uh, for example, to censor you, like to just to impede you to talk. It's not just against your free speech, but the, it's to create a moral background on people, so they do not exert, uh, exert the right uh, for uh, finding this information because they don't want to talk about that. It's not like they want to just to keep you shut, but they want to make people do not want to listen to you because everything you say is, is immoral to prove immoral. It's not like uh, it's one thing that we say in, uh, here in Brazil about libertarianism. You are uh, uh, innocent to proven guilty, right? Uh, right. Uh, 
uh, the left is not like uh, guilty to prove an innocent. It's guilty to prove guilty. Right. You are always wrong. That is the point of Linda. You are always wrong because you are against them, so you must be wrong. If they don't have any proof, you are wrong by default. If they have proof, so you are wrong anyway. <laughs> you know, so wrong until proven wrong in this way. Well, I think that's yeah. I think that's right. I think um, I mean this is uh, this is one problem with certain mentalities that arise even among libertarians, but not not usually so much. But you know, the liberal idea is that you live by live by right, not by permission. So basically, everything that you can do is permitted unless there's a prohibition, unless you're violating someone's rights. This is the libertarian perspective on on rights. So there is a lot of people here in Brazil who are libertarians, for example. I'm talking about the libertarian movement here in Brazil now, uh, who are defending Bolsonaro as he would be like, let's say, a libertarian paladin of politics. You know, mm -hmm. uh, like he is the best thing we got. I, I don't agree that. And there is people who are just going like, yeah. Is a politician. We don't care about that. And there are people who are just going against because they like the other party that is that exists right. over here. And there's people trying to make a new party uh, over here in Brazil too. Like, oh, we need to go like full libertarian in a political party. So, what do you think about this? Let's say uh, this flooding of political discourse on on a libertarian movement, uh, seeing as you have an analogous situation on, on your country, and we have uh, our own situation over here, right? So this, uh, this of course, we know it's, uh, it's a consequence of the democracy. Like, you just put uh, between a, hot, a rock and a hard place, and you need to make a decision, let's say. And, well, you can do no decision, but democracy says, like, yeah, like, if you don't decide, someone will decide for you, so you are in, in, in a bad spot. In a, and if you just propose, like, man, we need to think about another thing, not this, this dichotomy, then you are in a worse light ever because mm. now you are not talking about solutions. <laughs> like, that is the mentality over here. So I don't know if it's the same over there. Yeah, I think it's – well, I think it's the same, and this is the problem with modern politics. Um and democracy, right? Um, um, I hear people say things like, oh, we should have a parliamentary system like they have in Europe instead of like in America because then I guess the Libertarian Party would have a better chance because it's not a winner-take-all system, right? Uh, the, the system we have here is more of a winner-take-all system where you only – it means you only have two parties. And they're both going to be mainstream. But on the other hand, okay, Europe has lots of parliamentary democracies, but are they more libertarian? Not really. So I think this is all just wishful thinking, to be honest. It's all it's it's like when people come up with ideas like, oh, here's the way to fix the problem. We should have term limits. So politicians should only be able to be in office for this many years. Or we should have uh, campaign finance limits. They always keep coming up with these little fixes, right? To my mind, this is what like Mises talked about. Like when you have socialism, and I mean that generally, socialism is any institutional interference with private property rights. 
then you're going to screw things up, and that's going to result in bad consequences. And so that's going to give the rise for a call from some people to adjust the law, fix the law, whatever. Even if you have a tax law that's too high, people will evade it, and then the, the IRS will <coughs> excuse me, change the law to, uh, to tax people that evade the taxes. I mean so what Mises said was controls breed controls. Controls breed controls, and I think that's correct. Uh, the converse is that if you start reducing controls, then you don't need as many controls, and we can have – this is the way I think the state weathers away eventually. But the point is once you have democracy in place and you have all these things, you're going to have one thing leads to another, one one regulation, and you're going to have the, uh, the regulatory set of uh, r rules grow and grow and grow. Mr. Kinsella, your voice just fa uh, faded away. If you can just take a look in the microphone. Yeah, I, I muted yes, yes. Um, I think what happens is you have populism emerges, and we have a type of populism arising now, right? Right populism and a type of left populism too. Um, in probably your country and ours in Europe, um, uh, Trump is a weird mixture of both. Uh, but that's just because <laughs> what else can the people do? They're, they've been told that they have the right to vote and their right to speak and blah, 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 and this is how you make change. So they go out and protest, and they – you know, to me, it's, to me, it's just the natural consequence of having a state. So I hate to be like an academic, abstruse academic who is an egghead who doesn't care about the details, but in a sense, the details to me are irrelevant. Like as Hoppe points out, once you have democracy, it will naturally result in certain tendencies. That's what's happening. So you and I can say we shouldn't have this policy or that policy, but the reason we have this policy is because… Of the state existing in the first place, and probably because of the democratic form of the state we have now. So, to 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 rail against a certain type of policy, you know, like uh, like a tax system that taxes the rich more than the poor. To, to argue against that is in, in in a government that is based upon a democratic system. In other words, a progressive tax system is in inevitable because everyone gets to vote, and who are they going to vote for? They're going to vote for taxing the rich to give it to them. I mean it's just impossible to not have that result. It's almost like if you if – you, it's like if you have a welfare system. Like you give free food to the poor, and then you complain that they're lazy and they come get the free food. Well – if you give free food, if you put a pig trough out, the pigs will come eat at the trough. The problem is not the pigs. <laughs> the problem is the trough, right? Uh, if you could, if you could have a government law that 
no one that had no effect. We wouldn't have – like I wouldn't mind the drug war. It didn't have any effect. The reason we oppose laws is because they have an effect. Like if you outlaw marijuana or cocaine, you're going to have a drug war consequence, and we all know what that's like. It's horrible, right? Um, or if you have a welfare system or if you have a public education system or if you have a central bank, they're going to have effects. If they didn't have effects, we wouldn't object to them. I wouldn't mind if it said, "Hey, Kinsella, you have to pay 100%, but if you don't pay it, we don't mind." Okay, fine. I don't I don't like that's not my concern in life. The reason we object to these laws is because they have effects. So the effects matter. Um and so the point is these laws have real effects. So you but that what that what that means to me is you can't blame the people that respond to natural incentives that these laws set up because they respond to them because that's what the laws are are supposed to do you know if you outlaw cocaine or if you give free food people will respond that's the point of the law right if you outlaw tax evasion you're trying to prevent you're trying to dissuade some people from evading taxes or you're trying to motivate people to pay their taxes and it works, you know. These guys have control. It's not a it's not a fake thing. So we got to recognize that. You, don't blame the victims. I think um, I won't say the victims. Don't blame the people that respond. It's sort of like in the U.S. We had this bailout, of, uh, this PPP bailout thing they call it for the uh, coronavirus. And the, there's a big dilemma: should companies take the the payment? It doesn't matter what the argument is. Some companies will take it. Most will take it. They'll take it because they're being offered free money. Like that's the problem. The problem is not Amazon or Starbucks or whatever taking money or the or, or the Ayn Rand Institute for for that matter. The problem is not that they responded to the incentives that the government laid out in front of them. The problem is that the government laid these incentives out in front of them. Yeah, the problem is not like they are taking the, uh, taking the bait. The problem is the government sending the bait. We have a, a, a pretty similar thing over here in Brazil that is a uh, is a, like a, a not welfare. It's like a temporary aid of the government. It's something around one hundred dollars, one hundred fifty dollars, something like that, uh, to aid the Brazilian population on these on these times. And there is a lot of people. Taking it and stuff, and I am always against the existence of this kind of of programs, like aiding programs. Always against. And people say, oh, like, yeah, you should not take." Or I said, "No, no. If you want to take, you can because it's like you already paid for that. You paid for this handed free money, let's say, you know. And uh, yeah, it's it, there is there is in the end the real problem. The problem is not that uh, we have." Uh, people responding to these incentives. The problem is exactly things at the existence, as we have problems in, here in Brazil uh, over justice, and I think uh, you have over there in the United States. Like uh, the problem is not uh, people are abusing the the court system over here because it, it's slow and and is unsure, and you can just keep pushing everything. And uh, litigations over here takes like 20 years or so, you know. 
uh, the problem is that people can just use that because that that is set up in this way. So the it's like it's, a, it's not like the the guy who is doing that in bad faith is blameless, but it's like the guy who is doing that is the, not the sole uh, guy who should uh, carry the burden. Like the this, the blame is not only on him. Let's say. Uh, I'm not, I don't know if I'm clear. Oh yeah, no. Some of the Randians, and I have lots of disagreements with Randians, but some of them like they were defending their acceptance given a long time ago but the funny thing was her argument was basically that okay you're okay it's legitimate to take the money if you disagree with it so in other words the only people who can take welfare from the government are the people that think there should not be welfare and i understand the point the point is that as a moral point the point is that if you're endorsing the system, then you're morally culpable and you're responsible for it. So you actually don't – you don't deserve to get the money back because it's not restitution for you. But if you're an innocent libertarian who doesn't uh, agree to the system, you're getting back some of your money. So you could view it as restitution or whatever. I think that's a little bit of a convenient argument, but I, I, I get the point. But – of course, the problem for Randians is they're not really anarchists anyway. They don't even oppose the government. They don't even oppose big government. They just oppose uh, unlimited government, whatever that means. But again, this is my modern anarchist Kinsella self, not my original Randian minarchist minimal state, night watchman state self. Um, at this point, I have almost less tolerance for minarchists than I do for normal normal people normal people uh, at least have an excuse but minarchists it's like here's a funny thing minarchists make fun of anarchists because they say oh you're advocating something that's unrealistic and i think like well when has there ever been a minimal state why why is minarchy less more un, uh, le less unrealistic than anarchy is do you know what i mean to get on a tangent. So, no, but but it's one hundred percent true. It's a one hundred percent true tangent. Like, if you take two minarchies, they cannot agree what is the minimum. They 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 can't. Like, if you take two libertarians, we agree about almost all stuff. You know, there is a point to that. But the like the core of the idea, the minarchies, they cannot agree even on that. What is the minimal state? The last one is like, oh, health, education. The, the, the judicial system, the other, no, no, no health, no education, just judicial system and stuff. Uh, that is yeah. the funniest thing uh, we have over here. What we call a convicted liberal, like uh, liberal, not in the American way, but like classical liberal, because there's two kinds of, uh, two main kinds of uh, liberals, like classical liberals in Brazil. There is the transitional ones, the ones who discover the libertarian ideas and they are just uh, walking the way to become anarcho-capitalists. And there are the guys who just say, no, I'm a, I'm a convicted classical liberal. And these guys are just a joke because they cannot agree in anything. They, they just fight each other constantly because they don't have principles, you know. But what you said is 100% true. Like, uh, I'm, 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 I'm not say hate, hate is a strong word, but I, well, my vocabulary in English is not really 
intensive. So yeah, I get pissed off more often by leading socialists, you know? Like socialists, yeah, I get it. We have a socialist education. Everyone, you always hear uh, capitalism bad and stuff. Yeah, yeah, you're just a normie. Uh, you, you don't know. But the, the liberal, man, these guys are just annoying because they, they know the argument. They know this stuff, but they are just like hardheads, you know, meatheads. They don't get it, or they try to don't get it because they, some of them see like a, a political advantage of being a liberal. If, if you want to see something uh, kind of, sorry, if you want to see something kind of funny, uh, I did a debate with a guy named Jan Helfeld. It's on my uh, pod, my podcast site. He's this kind of Randian guy who's he's kind of interesting when he. He he just he's one of these Asperger kind of guys who walks up to like regular politicians and he puts the mic the microphone in their face and yeah he gets them in some gotchas right because regular people don't know how to answer libertarian questions but he's really a minarchist and so when he talks to anarchists like me he he just says things like would you if you were in a desert and the guy with you, you had one bottle of water and you had to drink it to live, what would you do? Like, what? What is that? What does it matter what I would do in that hypothetical, uh, you know, life raft situation? It's it's got nothing to do. But so he he's kind of like that. And so that debate just spiraled downhill. It was I was I was on top Kinsella mode. Um, uh, it was kind of funny, but um, no. What was funny though is you know I used to I used to think so libertarianism is like this. Like there's a spectrum, like I don't, left to right, orthogonal, Nolan chart, whatever you want to do. But you could think of you could think of uh, from from anarchist all the way to totalitarian, right? And on the way there, you, you uh, the anarchist is at one end, and then you have the minarchist next, etc. But someone I, I didn't come up with this. Someone referred to instead of calling the minarchist, you know, which is basically the minimal state guys, the night watchman state guys, the Randians, right? Instead of calling them minarchists, call them mini status. Like so, they're basically still status. But they want a mini state, whatever that means. And by, even the Randys, by the way, don't even say that. They, the Randys say we're not for a small government; we're for the proper sized government. That's what they say. So they're clear about this. And and by the way, some of them have, have recently clarified, like David Kelly, an old friend of mine, Jan Helfeld. They said, no, we don't agree with Rand's argument that you can't have taxes. Like you can have a government that's voluntarily funded by a lottery or some stupid thing like that. They said, no, that's not correct, and I think they're right. You can't have a government or state. You can't have a state that's funded by a lottery. It makes no sense. It has to have taxation. Yeah, because so they at least it, you can't. A condominium. Yeah, they. Sorry, go go ahead. That, so I like that, but but I, I like calling them mini status instead of minarchist mini status. Because that annoys them. It annoys them. It's sort of like the fractional reserve bankers. I don't know what you guys think about this, but that's one of my other things that I, I, I cannot stand the entire fractional reserve banking mentality. I think it's completely economically bogus. Uh, but they call themselves like fractional reserve free bankers, FRFBs, by an acronym. 
and they try to distinguish it from FRB, which is the central bank, the fractional reserve banking system. But to me, they're all FRBs. And if you call them fractional reservers, they get annoyed. It's just so funny. <laughs> yeah, so we have here the president of the <coughs> Brazilian Mises Institute. Uh, he's, a, uh, he's a guy who defends the fractional reserve. And I, I, every time I see him talking stuff, I'm like, man, Mises is just twisting inside his coffin right now, you know? <laughs> Like this yeah. guy, yeah. this is just getting angry. Like, <laughs> Sometimes I call it fra fraudulent reserve banking just to annoy them, but I don't really think it's essentially fraudulent, but just to annoy them because it's such a stupid idea. Yeah, like, you can do that uh, in a contractual structure. Like, yeah, if you go to a bank and you say, we're going to do this, a fractional reserve, be one. Yeah, I would not put my money over that. It's almost like a, a pyramid scheme, you know? <laughs> well, so, so what I think is what's interesting to me, this is on a different topic, but I find it, I don't know what you guys think about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and all this, but uh, um, I'm, a, I'm a fan. But accepting I'm, a, I'm, say again? Uh, I'm a, uh, I always accepting that. You, like that is you what I think we should use. You accept crypto cryptocurrency payments? Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is my QR yeah, code? I, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm skeptical of imagining how it can finally say replace the dollar, but who knows? I think eventually it's coming because everything's getting digital, right, in the modern world. So eventually, money will become digital. I don't know how, but. Anyway, I don't have these Austrian – these old-school Austrian objections to it like some people do. Um, but it, I just it, I just find it funny that uh, you have these gold these gold bugs, these gold nuts, you know, like Peter Schiff and these other guys, and they just they just they just can't accept the idea of something that's not gold. I don't know. Yeah, and, and they like like yeah because gold has in intrinsic value. Man, did you uh, did you read Kalmenger? <laughs> like intrinsic value, really? <laughs> like, I know. So that's what they, yeah. they they basically resort to intrinsic value because it's like well even if even if gold has a value <laughs> itself, that's not the main value of gold as money. So. There's nothing. In other words, they're looking. They're looking for God. I think they're looking for something to back up the gold. They back up the money. Like what backs up your money claims? It's like it's not a claim. You have oh, to get this whole monetary Not that <laughs> What's that? Say again. Uh, tell them to use Bitcoin backing, so they get triggered even more. You know, like oh, you don't need gold. You can use Bitcoin as backing. You just put a token over it. <laughs> yeah. So. They'll lose it. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, last question. Can you hear me, guys? Are you hear me? I hear you. Okay. So, last question, Kisela. Uh, considering the last questions asked by Andre, I would like to say that, like you, I am a lawyer and I, uh, as a libertarian, work with uh, execution of contracts. I avoid avoid acting in unethical areas. So. What do you 
as a libertarian, think about combining your vision with the field that you operate as a lawyer? Mm. What oh, do you think about that? Um, well, okay, let me give you two answers. Uh, number one is the is the is the cheap cheat answer um i'm not and this is not to avoid the question but i'm not sure libertarianism is really about ethical prescriptions for what you should do in your life um there is a reason we become interested in these ideas right obviously um and there's an ethical component to why we do that um but i do i do tend to think that libertarianism is really about understanding the the legal normative interplay between people and what laws we should have and what laws are justified so what laws we should have basically it's not about what you should do I'm not saying there's no overlap and no implications but just because I, i'm against the non-aggression because i'm in favor of the non-aggression principle doesn't mean that i think i should never commit trespass for example for for example you don't – I'm sure you would agree with me, and most people would agree. Um, there are some things you can do that are moral but that are – I'm sorry, that are immoral but that are legal. Like, for example, if you're rude to your grandmother or, or your parents or, or your child or, or your friends, if you do something horribly immoral, you shouldn't do that. But it's not a violation of the NAP, right? So there, there's definitely not – so everything that's unethical is not – and this is why we're libertarians. We, we don't – just because we think something is wrong, we don't want to outlaw it, right? So we, we're libertarians. Most people don't understand that. That's why they think that you shouldn't do drugs. Therefore, let's make drugs illegal. We would think, yeah, maybe you shouldn't do drugs, but it shouldn't be illegal, whatever. On the other hand, I think that – here's the question. If something should be illegal… Does that mean that it's immoral? And I don't know if that's actually true. Uh, so, for example, you could imagine situations where you have to break into some cabin in the woods to get a can of beans to keep your baby from starving to death in a snowstorm, some emergency. Um, should there be a law against it? Yes. Is it immoral personally? I don't know. That's debatable, but the point is I don't think that's what libertarianism is about. Libertarianism is about what laws should be enforced and what's just, and then the legal system and the society and the community, and maybe one reason we should have a jury system is to take into account the circumstances to modify the response, etc., right, reasonably. Um, so I guess that's one response. Um, so I guess th that answer is that that – Libertarianism is not really about what you should do in your personal life, so it really has no answer to the question of uh, your career and your personal choices and taking welfare or whatever. Um, now, in my personal case, um, to get down to brass tacks as we call it, uh, I'm a patent attorney. Um, there's always a danger. Um, of getting into a profession or a field where you are dependent upon the existing mechanisms uh, of being biased. Okay. Now I'm the opposite because I'm actually opposing. My, I'm doing something that's against my 
my interest. I'm opposing the whole patent system. Although, although strangely enough, it has helped my career because you wouldn't believe how many people have contacted me over the years to get me to do patent work because they assume I know what I'm doing because I'm so outspoken about it. Like they don't care that I agree with it or don't agree. They just figure that like if you know so much about this that you can speak about it so much, you probably know how to do a good patent for me. And they're they're actually right about that. So <laughs> it actually has not hurt me, and it hasn't hurt me with my co-professionals, my law firms, my clients because they don't care probably because I, I live in a, a modern society where like they don't care what my religion is. They don't they don't care that I'm an atheist or I'm a Baptist or a Catholic or a Jew or whatever. They don't care. So they don't they actually don't care what my opinion is about the patent law. So it does that doesn't hurt either. I learned that over years. It it hasn't hurt me. Um so I was cautious at first, and I, I thought that becoming more outspoken about the patent system would hurt my career. Um, so I'm just getting here to the point that like, if you take welfare, yeah, theoretically you could justify it, but the point is over time it could corrupt you. right? It could make you – so most school teachers that work for the government school system are in favor of the government school system. Big surprise. Probably most post office workers who work for the, the post office think the government – most police officers who work for the government think that you should have a government-run police force, etc. Right? It's a natural tendency. Um, so there's a danger there to taking a handout. But on the other hand, if you live in a society that's complicated, you shouldn't sacrifice yourself either. Um, in my view – in my view… What I do is analogous to being a tax attorney or a defense attorney in a country where uh, people can go to prison for um, uh, for evading taxes or for, for selling drugs, and if those laws, which are totally unjust, did not exist, there would be no need for such attorneys. But given that the laws exist, there needs to be those attorneys, and… They do a good thing by helping people navigate and respond to the system, which is there, and that's sort of what I do, and I've tried in my own career to pick the types of jobs and the types of clients where I'm only doing more um, innocuous or defensive work. So for example, if a client wanted me to sue someone… An innocent company, it it would be a moral dilemma for me. I I probably wouldn't do it, but that's only because I'm I've reached the point where I can say no. But when you're early in your career, what can you do? Um, so all that's just just to say that most people don't understand. Like, say what I do for a job as a patent attorney. They assume that I'm enforcing patents, but they don't even they, they don't even understand how the IP system works, which is another reason why we shouldn't have it because most people don't even know what they're in favor of. Um, um, you're not necessarily doing what you're – in other words, you're not necessarily a hypocrite just because you're in that system. And on the other hand, if I hadn't been in the system… I probably wouldn't have learned enough about it to be the main critic of it. Okay. 
Um, on the other hand, I do regret what I've done in a sense because I think there's probably – this is more of a legal career issue or a career issue. Um, I, I, there's other fields I wish I would have done, but just what I decided. Like I wish I would have done international arbitration or, or A, B, and C law instead of tax law uh, – instead of patent law just because I haven't loved it. But I don't regret it from an ethical point of view, and I've tried to do it um, ethically, and I've tried to learn from it and to use that to fight against it. So I don't know what else you can do. I mean if you're going to have someone who's a leading opponent of a system, who would you expect it to be other than someone who knows the system from the inside? It could be it could be a regular guy who doesn't even understand it and uses the terminology wrong, and then no one takes him, you know, no one takes him seriously. So I, it's like saying no, it's like saying no government employee can ever oppose the government. I mean, what's your goal? Is your goal to oppose the government or to oppose government employees? Do you know what I mean? So, I guess that's my. I, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's my shorthand uh, reply. Yeah, nice. Very nice, Mr. Casella. I understand very well. So, uh, it's, it's done, uh, our conversation. Uh, thanks for the chat. Uh, the conversation was very good and productive, elucidated several doubts. So, we are very happy with your presence in this little chat. We recorded everything, and soon we will publish it on YouTube and send you the link. All group is going to What? Sorry? I was going to say, you guys know, I, w I went to Sao Paulo uh, a few years ago for the Mises, uh, Mises Brazil thing, and I loved it. I, I would love to come back someday, so we, we shall see when the world opens up again. Yeah, we are, we are as possible. Yeah, we are from Fortaleza, Ceará. So okay. Yeah, I am from Porto Alegre. Like we, we don't live near São Paulo. <laughs> so, Gisela, so, can you repeat uh, something like "Obrigado, Visconde"? Uh, say again. Obrigado, Visconde. Obrigado, Visconde. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> Obrigado, Visconde. Obrigado, Visconde. <laughs> Sorry, I'm probably mangling it. Thanks, man. So we are very grateful to your presence. And it's that. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. I enjoyed talking to you.